Morning, church. My name is Wade, and um, like Tom said, uh, we're we're in Christmas, in the Christmas season. We're in the Advent season, and um, I appreciate uh, what Tom has shared in his remarks, as well as Regina's prayer. We're um, living in this reality where uh, this is a great time for many people. It's also a difficult time. Um, this is, if you guys listen to music, uh, the radio, um, how I know like Christmas season has started is when you hear Mariah Carey singing, All I Want for Christmas is You. Um, and that kind of sets the tone for a lot of people, is that this is a, a season of, of cheer. This is, for many people, uh, a good month. Uh, and this is, I think, even if people aren't, they don't believe in Christ, even if they don't have any familiarity with religious things, um, they, they, they can still look forward to the season. This, this is the one time that um, most people, the majority of our people in this culture, um, have something to look forward to or perhaps um, not look forward to. Um, those who are in the former group, those who look forward to this Christmas season, um, they're thinking of the get-togethers, the good deals that they can find online, um, seeing friends and family, giving and receiving presents, the time off work you might get. Um, you don't even have to believe that a man named Jesus even existed to enjoy these things. And then there are also those who um, this Christmas season is, what it does is it highlights what they don't have. It's a season of sorrow and dread because they're thinking about the people who are no longer around to celebrate with them. They're thinking about the financial constraints that they have. They're not able to enjoy things like other people might. They're not able to spend time with the person that they really want to spend time with. Or they're thinking about the broken relationships or their lost health. And whatever group you belong to, whether or not this is a good season for you or whether or not it's a season of just uh, dread and sorrow, there's good news for you. Because Christmas is for you. And it's not good news for us today because it means that you're going to get everything that you hope for because some of us hope for really dumb things and God in his mercy is not going to give you what you want. It's not because Christmas means that everything that you used to have will be restored because sometimes the things that you lose, you're not going to get it back. It's gone. But what Christmas means is that God has seen our plight, our deepest anxieties and stresses and worries and pains, and he's done something about it. He's done something for us that no amount of human wisdom, no amount of luck, no amount of goodwill or optimism or strength can achieve. So Christmas is for you. If this has been a good year, and I know that for some of us it has been a good year, some of you guys had babies, some of you guys got married, some of you got new jobs, some of you bought new homes, some of you made a lot of money, some of you were able to enjoy your friends and family, you were able to travel, it's been a good year. And Christmas is for you. But then there are others of us that it's been a year and it hasn't been a good one. Some of us are barely hanging on as this year closes. We've experienced heartbreak, relational rifts, or job losses, infertility. Our bones are tired. Our faith in God is barely existent. 
Some of us have lost a lot of money through your investments. We're thinking about the future and we're scared and we're anxious. And Christmas is for you. And what about the world? Wars and rumors of wars, inflation, recession, layoffs, political instability, fractured America, all the craziness that we can hardly believe is happening. You read things on in the news that 10 years ago you never would have imagined this would have happened. Christmas is for the world. Christmas is for the world. And then what about Indelible Grace Church? This has been the worst year of the history of our church. And by the grace of God, I think we're more stable. I think that we're in a decent place. But we've been beat up really good. And Christmas is for us, too, in Double Grace Church. So we're going to look at this classic passage um, that a lot of churches go through during the Christmas season. And... Um, This sermon is going to be a little bit different this time around. Uh, What we're going to do is, instead of reading through the entire text, um, I'm going to read it throughout this sermon. Um, We're going to make our way through Isaiah chapter 8, verses 11 uh, to chapter 9, verse 7. And um, I'm going to read through the the passage. Um, I'll provide some commentary. um, And I'm going to try to give us a little bit of room during this message to let it sink in, for us to meditate on it. it's not something that we usually do. Um, I'm not trying to uh, be neat or novel. I just want us to um, realize that sometimes we hear things, like you guys will listen to whatever the preacher says, and you don't hear what the preacher says, even though you hear it, because you're expecting to hear something that you've always heard before. Um, but God speaks through his word. We believe that this is the power of God. And sometimes we don't pay attention to what God is saying. So I'm hoping that we'll have a little bit of time for us just to pay attention. Um, I'm going to say stuff because I have to. Um, I won't, I'll try not to say anything that's unnecessary. Um, and just let God speak to us through the text. So um, before we actually get into the text, I want to provide a little bit of historical background. So Isaiah, this is um, the, it's a, it's, the book of Isaiah is a prophetic book. It speaks of things that have happened in history. It speaks of things that will happen. It's God speaking through the prophet Isaiah. And in, the, in this particular passage that we're going through, we need to understand this, that the, God, the people of God have been under the threat of attack and rule by the Assyrians. The king uh, that leads the people of God, his name is King Ahaz, and he's failed to lead the people well. He didn't obey God. He compromised. He wanted to form an alliance with the enemy, the Assyrians, and he led the people of God astray. And history tells us, the book tells us, the Israelites, they were defeated by by the Assyrians. And as they are under this threat, the majority of the Israelites, they have turned away from God. They've turned away from Yahweh, the one true God. And yet among the the people, there was what the Bible calls a remnant. A remnant is a small subset of people who remain faithful to God. And this passage that we're going to look at in chapter 8, this is going to address two groups of people. um, Those who are unfaithful as well as those who have remained faithful. So um, we're going to have... Um, the passage up on the screen for part of the sermon. What I'm going to ask you guys to do, if you have your Bibles or your phones, 
pull up the passage, and we're going to go through it because um, I think it's going to be a little bit of a, it's going to be kind of clunky to have the passage up there. We're going to do some other things as well. But um, I guess, June, if I could ask you to keep, the, keep it up there as long as possible, and then later on we'll, we'll take it down. But um, let's look at the first few verses of Isaiah chapter 8, verses 11 and 12. This is what he writes. For the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. So Isaiah here, he's writing to the people who are listening. Um, They take his words seriously. And he says, You are distinct from those who are unfaithful. He says that there are those who walk, he says in verse 11, um, and, be, and they warn me not to walk in the way of this people. This people is referring to those who are unfaithful to the Lord. And then in this text, we're, hear, we're hearing this. For the Lord spoke to me. Those who belong to the Lord, those who are faithful, listen to God. They live under the authority of his word. For the Lord spoke thus to me. His strong hand is upon me. It means that they live under God's authority and protection. They trust that God will take care of them. They trust that the rules and the commands that he gives are for their good. And they can joyfully obey. They are to live in obedience. And they do not fear. Verse 12, it says, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. Why do they fear why do this, the, the unfaithful fear? Because they don't know who's in control. Because they think that it's up to them to figure things out. But Isaiah says to the faithful, do not value what they value. You are to think differently. When he refers to the conspiracy in this, in this verse, he's speaking of, this is a reference to King Ahaz's alliance with the Assyrians. Um, he's going to make plans, political plans, that he thinks are the right plans, but God says, nope, that is not going to work. Verse 13, But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear, and let him be your dread. He's telling them, God you shall fear, God you shall dread. If there's going to be anyone, anything, that makes you tremble, it should be the Lord. The Lord is the Lord of hosts, with your life, with your thinking, honor him as holy. In verse 14, And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Isaiah says this, If you are distinct from the unfaithful, if you live differently from them, then you will find your strength and security in your life with God. You're going to find your strength and security in God. Do not fear the enemy. Don't direct your fear and anxiety toward the enemy, but direct it toward God. And for those of us who follow Jesus, um, we are to be known. This is going to be part of our identity as a people who are holy. Listen to the New Testament, First Peter chapter 1. And if you call on him as father who judges, and judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. 
knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Isaiah tells the people of God, Be holy, let your life reflect the holiness of God. And to us, he's saying, Be holy, let your life reflect the holiness of God. verse 14 see what Isaiah says he will become a sanctuary he will become a sanctuary God is the sanctuary God is the house in which the people live the dwelling place of God is the sanctuary where do man and God meet the sanctuary and this is a reference a hidden reference to another dwelling place of God Emmanuel, which means God with us. The song that you sang earlier. Emmanuel means God with us. God dwells with his people. God is the sanctuary. And you, people of God, you dwell in the sanctuary. Because he dwells with you. Verse 15. And many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. To some people, this hope is true hope. It is something that they can hang their hats on. It's something that they can hang their lives on. But to others, he says, this is a snare. And if you remember um, months ago when we talked through, when we walked through 1 Corinthians, um, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. When God confronts people, there are two options. Either you fear God and he becomes your life, he becomes your hope, or you stumble on that hope that's provided. You become offended at what God says. But to those who are being saved, this is life to us. And then let me read you this, uh, the next few verses. Verse 16. Bind up the testimony, seal the teaching among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding from his house hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? To the teaching and the testimony. If they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. This passage contains, or it it, it contrasts two types of people. Again, there is the remnants contrasted against the unfaithful. Verse 17, there are those who wait for the Lord. There are those who put their hope in the Lord. But there there are also those who will not speak according to what God speaks. Verse 20, that's what it says. It's because they have no dawn. And Isaiah is saying this. He's saying that there is no hope outside of what is spoken. If you look outside the word of God for direction to set your values, to think about your future, 
It's saying this, that there is no hope for you. Everything that's spoken and hoped for that does not align with what God says in his word, this is spoken in darkness. There is no light. There is no dawn. And the verse 22, And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. And the prophet Isaiah, he says this, These people, they have no direction because they have not trusted in the Lord. There's no competent king to guide them. King Ahaz failed them. There is no general to lead them to military victory. There is a spiritual blindness. They're aware that they haven't lived up to what to, to God's standards and they're not sure how they can fix it. This is darkness. Uh, about 30 years ago, an author by the name of William Styron, he w- wrote a short book call, uh, called Darkness Invisible. I'm sorry, Darkness Visible. And um, this is a book about depression. Um, and I think in it he articulates well what hopelessness and gloom feel like for the person who is experiencing um, depression. So he speaks a little bit about what led him to this place of just deep, dark depression. And it began with the death of his mother. So um, when he was younger... His mother died. Um, he wasn't sure how to handle it. She died from cancer when he was just a young boy. So you can imagine the trauma that that might cause. Um, that trauma never left him. And then he tells his reader how it affected him throughout his entire life. One dreads the loss of all things, all people close and dear. There is an acute fear of abandonment. Being alone in the house, even for a moment, caused me exquisite panic and trepidation. And he continues on. He describes what depression feels like. Listen to what he writes and um, listen for the hopelessness in it. In depression, this faith in deliverance, in ultimate restoration, is absent. The pain is unrelenting. And what makes the condition intolerable is the foreknowledge that no remedy will come, not in a day or a month or a year, not in a minute. If there is mild relief, one knows that it is only temporary. More pain will follow. It is hopelessness, even more than pain, that crushes the soul. Let me read that again. It is hopelessness, even more than pain, that crushes the soul. And then he tells the reader, if you're depressed, how do you deal with it? And he doesn't really have good news. This is what he writes. The pain of severe depression is quite unimaginable to those who have not suffered it, and it kills in many instances because its anguish can no longer be borne. In the absence of hope, we must still struggle to survive, and so we do by the skin of our teeth. And I think this is a good description of darkness. Even if you don't suffer from depression, um, the word picture he paints I feel is so vivid um, you can you can almost almost feel a little bit of the pain that he feels, and if not a literal darkness, then a figurative darkness that's far more terrible than literal darkness. And I think that this is a little picture of the type of darkness that Isaiah is referencing when he speaks uh, in today's passage. He's saying that whatever this this uh, author William Styron experienced, the darkness that the people in Isaiah we're experiencing is far worse. There is emotional, physical, spiritual 
darkness. There's no hope. All there is is a struggle to survive. The Assyrian threat was bearing down on them. Those who were once faithful have fallen away. Imagine if you were uh, part of this church and 90% of the people left because they turned away from God. How would you feel? There's no good king coming to the rescue. All the good ideas have run out. The people are in darkness. So then, what do we have to say to William Styron? What can I say to you? What does Isaiah have to say to the people of God? As we think about Christmas, as we're in this Advent season, we should be very aware that there is a reality that contains both the good and the bad. There is going to be happiness this month. There's going to be joy. You guys will laugh. You're going to smile. But there's also something profoundly wrong with the way things are. And Christmas says that God is going to do something about it. But not yet. Not yet. Between chapter 8 and 9, there's this almost unbearable tension The people are in darkness. And what can be done? What can be done? Remember I said there are two groups of people. The faithful and the unfaithful. Is the answer to be more faithful? Is it to try harder? Is it to be more moral? Is it to strengthen ourselves so that we can fight our battles? This is not what the hope is for the people of God. This is not what this text is about. This text is not a contrast between good people and bad people because we are all bad. I'm sorry to tell you. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, he says this, The line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart and through all human hearts. The defeat of the Israelites, this was God's judgment on the people of God. It was God saying to them, You're getting what you deserve. And if you're in darkness, if you really feel true hopelessness, you're going to understand, I don't deserve rescue. I don't deserve deliverance. So there's this contrast that Isaiah gives us in this passage. It's a contrast between those, not who are good and bad, but a contrast between those who recognize their need and those who don't. Where is your hope? Is it in political systems? Is it in the economy? Is it in your portfolio? Is it in the people around you? Or is your hope somewhere else? Can we say to God, whatever plans I have, I can't trust in those. Whatever strength I have, I'm weak. I'm weak. So this Advent season is not a time for us to strengthen our resolve, to be better people. It's not a time for us to think about how we can improve ourselves or to read the Bible more or to pray more. These are great things and you should do them, but this is not what the call of this passage is. The Advent season is a time for us to look at the God who gives us 
Jesus. So here we are in between verses, chapters 8 and 9. And I said I'm going to give you guys a little bit of time to breathe and think. So that's what I'm going to do. Think about the darkness in the world. Think about the darkness in your own heart. Think about the fear that you have. Think about your sin. Think about your doubts. Think about that. And then we're also going to think about the goodness that God has for us. We're going to look to Christ. So um, just for like two minutes, I'm going to just invite you guys to, you guys can close your eyes if you want to. Um, you can keep them open if you want to, but um, it's going to be quiet. And um, you can listen to, ask God to speak to us. Stay Steve seated, but let's just sing this song together as we
me through the fire in darkest night. You are close like no other. I've known you as a father and I've known you as a friend, and I have lived good. And all my life you have been faithful And all my life you have been so, so good With every breath that I am able Oh, I will sing of the goodness of God God is good, and this is what we're singing about. Though we are in darkness, though we have been unfaithful, and as Isaiah writes to the, the Israelites, you're in darkness, but you won't be left in darkness. Look at verse 9, chapter 9, verse 1. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. You have multiplied the nations, the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. This is a description of the hope that's to come. Isaiah says, you've walked in darkness, but you will not remain in darkness. There is a great light coming. When Isaiah uses this metaphor of darkness, he's saying, he's referring to the oppression, the oppression of the people of God. And when he writes about the light, he's referring to the liberation that's to come. And there's this kind of geographical reference in verse 1. He speaks of the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. When foreign armies wanted to conquer Israel, what did they do? They went 
over the Fertile Crescent to invade them. This was the first area to come into attack, come under attack. This is the Galilee of the nations to the north of the region. And Isaiah says this, those who live in Galilee, they know what it is to be attacked. They know what it's like to be enslaved. They know what it's like to be despairing. And God says, he's turning the place of invasion into a place of light. The Galileans, you used to be the first to see the attack coming. You used to be the first to see the darkness of the enemy. But now you will be the first to see the light. God comes to his people where they suffer the most. Where the people hurt the most is where God is, God is going to launch his mission of light and salvation to the world. Upon this deep darkness, God, on his own initiative, he made a light explode onto it. And the ones who used to walk in darkness, he says, you will one day, you're going to have to squint because the light is so bright. A light you've never seen before. Verse 4, For the yoke of his burden, and the staff for his shoulder, and the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping, tramping warrior in the battle, battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Here, Isaiah speaks of God breaking the power of the oppressors. There are oppressors coming, but you, people, you have nothing to do with it. You and I are not the subject of any verbs in these verses that I just read. Isaiah mentions the day of Midian, and he's referring to this episode in the book of Judges in the Old Testament. If you remember, Gideon, he's up against the, Midianite, the Midianites. And God tells Gideon, you've got 32,000 men. Let me whittle it down. Not 30,000, not 10,000, not 1,000, not 500. Gideon, I'm giving you 300 men to fight this huge army with. And God's strategy doesn't make sense. And yet it's in this story that God's power is made known because he wants Gideon to know against the Midianites, you've done nothing. You've done nothing to fight against them. I've done all the fighting for you. Isaiah is looking ahead to this liberator who's even greater than Gideon. Verse 5, it says, For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. He's saying this, that everyone who fights against you, their weapons, their equipment, their clothing, that's going to be burned up. None of it's going to matter because God is fighting for you. And therefore, we step into a land that has been won for us already. And it's our job to see what God does and will do. And it's our job to celebrate. And how is God going to bring this light to the people? Verse 6, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and the original hearers, they're thinking, I don't get this. Because here we are with this Assyrian army bearing down on us. What good is there? 
what can you do? You got to send us some reinforcements. You got to send us a warrior, many warriors. You need to send us a leader. For to us a child is born. God says, I'm going to send you a baby. This is the great light. And he tells the people of God what this baby is going to do. The government will be upon his shoulders. This child bears the weight of all the affairs of man. Every political party, every act of violence, every act of justice falls on this baby. The burden of rule is on him. And why is the burden on his shoulders? Because every other god, every other idol that we have, they're always ultimately going to make us carry them. The burden of their existence falls on you if you believe in them. They will demand the best of your time and energy. And we need to ask ourselves, what is it that governs my life? What is it that I care about the most? What dictates my schedule and my checkbook? What do we think about the most? That is our God. And if it's anything other than Jesus, then you are bearing the weight of that God. The weight is on your shoulders. Either you will carry your God or your God will carry you. So who is your God? And for those of us who submit to the kingship of Jesus, we can be ensured that the, uh, the entirety of our existence falls on his shoulders. The government will be upon the shoulders of this baby. The burden falls on Jesus and he gladly carries it. He says he's a wonderful counselor. What qualifies this baby to rule the world? It's because he isn't some distant deity that just observes and gives advice on how to live. He knows all things, not just theoretically. He came and lived among us. He took on human flesh. He knows what it's like to be human. He knows what it's like to be heartbroken and lonely and in physical pain and abandoned. He's not only sympathetic to us, he's also empathetic in the truest sense of the word. Jesus understands everything that we're going through. He's a wonderful counselor. He's a source of all wisdom. He teaches us and guides us. He brings to light our understanding of ourselves and the reality of who God is. He counsels us. He tells us what is true and what is false. He exposes our ignorance and he shows us the path of life. He's the mighty God. Isaiah is using, he's using military terminology here. This word mighty in the Hebrew, it's the Hebrew word gabor, which means um, hero or champion or victor. It means that Jesus is not just God, but he is the mighty God who fights on your behalf. He is a warrior. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. This is what John writes in his gospel. The darkness will never defeat us if we try to fight our the darkness will defeat us i'm sorry if if we try to fight it ourselves but it will not defeat jesus jesus saves people in impossible situations jesus is the mighty god jesus is the everlasting father and um if you're uh, paying attention to theology you might think that that sounds a little bit strange you might be thinking something is off jesus isn't he part of the trinity isn't god the father the father um, as when Isaiah writes this, he's saying that God is uh, Jesus. Jesus is God. 
Jesus, Isaiah isn't confusing Jesus with the Father. Rather, he's pointing out the, the divine nature of Jesus. We're told elsewhere in the Bible that Jesus, but that through Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. It's saying that Jesus is the source of life, and in that sense, he is the Father. Not only that, but he loves us as a good father would, with gentleness and compassion. It says that he's the everlasting Father. There is no end to our relationship with him. Charles Spurgeon says this, There is no unfathering Christ, and there is no unchilding us. He is everlastingly a father to those who trust him. You can never lose your relationship with Jesus. It's always secure. No matter how much you've messed up, Jesus will hold you. He will care for you. And finally, Jesus is the Prince of Peace. He brings peace to the world in two ways. He will push back against the darkness of the world. He will one day make all things right. There will be flourishing in every aspect of existence. All injustice and pain, every cause of suffering, all these things will be completely wiped out because Jesus is the Prince of Peace. And he's also the Prince of Peace in that he makes peace between us and God. The Gospel says that we've offended God. We deserve judgment from God, just like the Israelites have deserved the judgment from the Assyrians. But this child makes peace between man and God because as he grows up, he will live the perfect life. He will die the death that we deserved on the cross. And he will make peace between us and God. And we are no longer enemies, but God calls us his children. God will not let us die in our sins. And Christmas means that the light of Christmas has overcome sin and death. Final verse of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness, from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is never going to end. You're never going to get tired of Jesus. You're going to be living with him for all eternity, and there will not be one moment in which you will not be in awe of him. You'll be responding in worship. And it will never end. And it begins here. You can know Christ. You can enjoy Christ. You can enjoy the fellowship that Christ has for us. And I love the final line. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Do you know that God wants to rescue you? Do you know that God wants to love you? This is not an item on his checklist of things to do. God is under no obligation. The zeal of the Lord will do this. It means that God's heart burns with love for you. Though you deserve judgment, the heart of God through Jesus Christ is open to you. So this is what Christmas is. For good people, bad people, faithful, unfaithful, though we deserve judgment, God is going to overrule that judgment with goodness and grace and mercy. And those who live in darkness will see a light. And keep that in mind. Keep that in mind. Will you pray with me? Um, God, we, uh, what, how can we respond to that except with um, awe and worship? And I pray that we would have a humility as we go into this uh, Advent season 
Um, we don't deserve Christmas trees. We don't deserve the goodness of friends and family. We don't deserve the good food. We deserve judgment. We deserve hell. And yet you say no to those things. You say, I'm going to give you Jesus Christ. As a sign of my love for you, as a sign of my goodness, of my holiness. So God, impress it in our hearts that this is true and cause us to celebrate as we rejoice at the coming of Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.